0: this episode of cheat codes a sickle cell podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only hey there warriors welcome to another episode of cheat codes a sickle cell podcast with me dr z me, Dr. C. Dr. C, we've got another Legacy episode, and we're so, so proud and lucky to be able to call uh, the folks who are going to be with us on this podcast, colleagues and friends. We're joined by the wonderful team at St. Jude Children's Hospital.
1: Yeah, this is huge. We have an all-star cast today.
0: It's, it's unbelievable that we even got everybody in the same uh, quote-unquote room together today.
1: Do you guys ever see each other in person anymore, or is this the first time you've seen each other?
0: Yeah, I have the privilege of getting to see
2: Jane every now and then, and Mitch every now and then. The others I miss dearly.
1: So
0: for the warriors that are listening and have obviously heard the name St. Jude, are familiar with the brand of St. Jude and, and all of your sort of accomplishments, let's let's take back one step and start with just some personal introductions. So just give us a, a one-liner on who you are, how long you've been at St. Jude, and then we'll take the conversation from there. I want to start with uh, Miss Yvonne.
3: I'm Yvonne Carroll and I'm the director of patient services at uh, St. Jude, and I've been there since
4: 1999. I'm Jane Hankins, Uh, happy to be here. Uh, I'm a hematologist. I'm originally from Brazil, and I treat the kids and adults with sickle cell disease, and I am a clinical researcher.
5: Hi, I'm Wen Wong, pediatric hematologist, and I've been at St. Jude actually since 1979, so a little over 40 years now emeritus and still kind of hanging around
2: though. So yeah, my name's Jeremy Estep, I'm a pediatric hematologist. Um, I have been at St. Jude since 2012 um, on faculty and I was born in 1979, so a little bit over 40 years of age. And I'm very lucky to have Wynn still around as emeritus faculty, a wealth of knowledge and just a, an all around swell guy.
6: Hello, and nice to meet you, Amar. I came to St. Jude six years ago to be chairman of hematology. And before I came, I was a CHOP. And I'm an MD-PhD who who has always spent about 80% of the time in the lab. And one of the reasons that I came to St. Jude is so that I could focus on doing something with my basic science of red cell biology to help patients with sickle cell disease. And so St. Jude and the clinical researchers at St. Jude have offered me the opportunity to do that, to apply my basic science of readiness to something good for patients.
0: We are um, just so happy to have all of you here today. You know, I was was talking to Jane last night a little bit, and I was telling her how I've been trying to work my way through this book here, Dying in the City of the Blues. And uh, I was telling her that it's a dense read. It's difficult to work your way through that book. I've been trying for a while now. But the story of sickle cell disease in Memphis is intertwined. I, I got a sense of that in just the first 30 pages of reading through this book. Dr. Wong, I want to start with you and, and sort of your experience coming to St. Jude in 1979, seeing things grow over the last 40 plus years. Let's start off with what are you most proud of that you've seen come from St. Jude in these last four decades?
5: So I think overall, it would be the uh, growth of the sickle cell program, which started uh Actually, before I I, uh, came to Memphis in 1979, but when I came, I was recruited to be the primary person in in non-malignant pediatric hematology. Since the largest number of our non-malignant hematology patients were sickle cell patients, children with sickle cell disease, um, it was kind of a natural evolution for me to uh, spend more and more of my time in the care and research of children with sickle cell disease. So when I first arrived, uh, there were only three of us that actually spent almost all of our time related to sickle cell disease. That included a nurse and a, and a coordinator. Over the years, we've gradually expanded to, I'm not sure how many right now, um, but it's a vastly greater number. And, and that's been kind of the result of, um, at least in the beginning, uh, participating in various uh, sickle cell Consortia that uh, included the cooperative study of sickle cell disease, which we participated in for twenty years, and then various hydroxyurea trials, which culminated in the Baby Hug trial, as well as the development of a comprehensive sickle cell center. So, and I guess I could say I'm proud of being involved in all of those uh, all of those aspects. One additional thing uh, that I'll mention is that. Uh, we had the uh, Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center's annual meeting back in 2006. That was held at the, at the Peabody Hotel. And actually that turned out to be the last um, Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center meeting, but it was a very enjoyable occasion for
0: me. Amazing. I think that the, the interaction, the, the community that you've built with patients in Memphis is a really interesting story as well. And I wanna pull in Yvonne here. And, and have her tell us a little bit about what she's seen, the growth she's seen, things that she's been proud of along the way, initiatives that she's been involved in.
3: Well, I think one of the biggest things is that at St. Jude, we just can't forget that it allows people to have dignity. There's no separation between those that can pay and those that can't pay. What I've seen just traveling around the country, there is a big difference. People call hospitals charity hospitals when people are on government assistance or they can't pay. So that just lifts a burden off of every family member uh, that they don't have to worry about paying any money. We provide transportation. If they're coming for from a distance, we provide lodging, we provide food. So all of that is just a matter of, of giving a family dignity and not having them uh, worry about someone looking down upon them because someone else has more money than they do. That's just one of the biggest things when I go around the country and see how When people talk about how they're treated at some places, that that to me is just amazing. And it has always been one of the biggest benefits that St. Jude provides to families and patients.
0: That's so fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm curious, is this just like anybody qualifies for this? What are the policies that go into that deciding who gets to take advantage of this? Who doesn't? How does that work?
3: There is no policy. It's every patient. It's the same for every single patient. And it doesn't matter if you make a million dollars a year or you make $10,000 a year. Everybody is treated exactly the same at St. Jude.
2: And I just wanna throw in, that includes all therapies, medicines that are needed for that child, all diagnostic imaging, any hospitalization costs, the entire medical care of
1: the patient is covered. And it's just pediatrics and hematology and oncology. Is that right? It's really mission focused on those, those small areas. So it's there- a hospital just built for, for pediatric hematology and oncology, and the whole mission, the whole focus, the research, the patient care, all the support services are, are just focused on you know, sickle cell hematology diseases and cancer.
3: That's one of the things that when St. Jude was founded, a pediatric general pediatric hospital opened right at the same time, right before St. Jude. So one of the things that Danny Thomas decided with his group of advisors, of course, was to not open a general pediatric hospital, but open a specialty hospital. And I think that has been one of the biggest uh, pluses at St. Jude. I'll just kick in, and, in terms of when where we are right now and with Black Lives Matter that's going on all over the country, that when Danny Thomas founded St. Jude, he founded it as in the policy of no discrimination. And if you think back at the time in Memphis in the early 60s, um, what was going on at that time, he decided that no patient, if they couldn't stay, if all patients couldn't stay at a hotel, no patients would stay at a hotel outside. And so he effectively desegregated many of the hotels in Memphis. And of course the same at St. Jude, all patients. And what a lot of people don't know is one of the the architects of St. Jude, the first building that was built at St. Jude was designed by a black architect, Paul Williams. So it has a history of uh, non-discrimination and inclusion since the beginning.
5: I'll just throw in the fact that one of the founders of St. Jude, a supporter of it from the beginning was um, Lemuel Diggs, who was a pathologist that described much of the pathophysiology of uh, sickle cell disease for the first time. The first research grant obtained by a St. Jude faculty person was one that uh, Lemuel Diggs uh, was able to to obtain.
2: It was based on sickle cell disease, right?
5: Right. Yeah. And that's 1962
1: or or something. Yeah.
5: Yeah, back in 1962. I'll mention, as far as Dr. Diggs goes, he, um, in 1994, presented a poster at the ASH meeting. And Mm -hmm. since he was born in 1900, he was 94 years old at the time he presented that. And that's, I think that's a record as far as I know.
4: That's your goal, right? Uh,
5: No, it's not my goal.
6: (laughs) Yvonne Diggs. in the story that St. Jude is is the first integrated hospital in the South, that Danny Thomas refused to build the building or refused to support the
3: hospital, and that black and white children could be treated in the same hospital. He, he was very adamant when the hospital opened. Were you here then? I didn't come to Memphis until 92. No, Danny Thomas
1: was from Detroit, so we're still a little sore that yeah. he decided to build St. Jude's <laughs> in Memphis.
2: Well,
3: you, know you you you
2: owe it to the archdiocese um, there in Detroit. So he um, he actually went to the archdiocese of the church that he was praying at and belonged to, and the archdiocese was from Memphis and directed him here to put the hospital in Memphis because he knew there was a need.
1: Well, it worked out pretty well.
6: <laughs> so it's probably also worth mentioning to you guys that St. Jude won't take. Any- we treat patients that are within our catchment area, which is, I think, about a 200-mile radius around Memphis. For general care, you have to be in the catchment area. If we're doing research protocols, we, we will um, take patients who are eligible for research protocols outside of that area. That's hmm. the general structure.
1: So as far as sickle cell patients, that's a lot of western Tennessee and into Arkansas?
2: Yeah, so we we currently have contracts with the state of Tennessee and the, and Mississippi as the confirmatory center for newborn screening for a large section of the western part of Tennessee, northern part of Mississippi, and then we get some patients from kind of the boot hill of Arkansas. It's
5: the boot hill of Missouri, but um, oh, I'm sorry, boot hill of about, Missouri.
2: Yeah, sorry,
5: about eastern Arkansas. We do get patients from. It.
0: Now, I was talking to, in pre- preparing for this podcast, me and me and uh, Dr. Callahan were talking a little bit about things that we know about St. Jude. And he told me something I didn't know about the initiation of curative therapy and uh, the first potentially, and I want you guys to confirm this. What we had read is that the first transplant to cure sickle cell disease happened at St. Jude. Is that true? That is true. Yes.
3: So, so let me clarify. It, it didn't actually happen at St. Jude. It was a St. Jude patient and St. Jude doctors, and at that time, St. Jude was, was building their transplant unit. My understanding is called one of his friends and asked if they could use their facility. So it's an amazing story. They all got in uh, the ambulance and the doctors and the donors went down and did the procedure and, and came back to St. Jude for the follow-up. So the, the patient and the doctors were St. Jude doctors, but physically, it was not done at St. Jude, but she is uh, Kimberly Wilson George is doing well. She is uh, phenomenal. She's married, has three children, and is an uh, advocate for sickle cell disease. And that was um, yeah. You know, I don't
5: think it was mentioned that um, Kimberly also had leukemia, and so the uh, the transplant was actually to cure the leukemia. But in the course of the transplant. Her sickle cell disease was also
0: cured. That's actually a really good segue because you know we're 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 moving quickly into this age of curative therapy. It's evolving fast, and of course we've got you know Dr. Mitch Weiss here with us. So I want to hear a little bit from you, Mitch, about about what's happening at St. Jude in 2020. Where where has curative therapy this road for curative therapy? Where has it led, and where is it going?
6: This is a very important part of our program now. In the last six years. We hired a new chairman of the bone marrow transplant program, Stephen Gaudershock, whose specialty is is immunotherapy for cancer, CAR T-cells. He also appreciates the need to do cutting-edge bone marrow transplantation and cellular therapies for non-malignant disorders, including sickle cell disease. And so he's been a, a, a great partner in, in, in this effort. And we have been trying hard to build that effort up for curative therapies based on cellular transplantation. So what, what Stephen and I have done together is to hire Akshay Sharma, who is a talented young um, transplanter who is interested in sickle cell disease cellular therapies. The other important thing is that um, Jane has a footprint in the adult hospitals. Because we have to, for the most cutting edge curative therapies, we have to recruit, uh, we have to start with adult patients. As you know, in order to do these kind of therapies, you you need um, good clinicians and and researchers, um, laboratory researchers and good clinicians to make sure that the laboratory researchers aren't overly aggressive with their therapies and are applying them properly all of our clinical people have been working with the bone marrow transplant group to design clinical protocols for our sickle cell patients. And so we have opened up a protocol, we're working on both allogeneic transplantation and autologous genetic therapies. And so Akshay has has opened up a protocol for matched SIB low intensity conditioning uh, transplant for sickle cell disease and we've treated a few patients, and they're they're doing well. He, I'm not sure if this is open yet. He is working on um, a haplo transplant protocol as well. We're also trying to, um, you know, I'm strongly encouraging him to, to interact with the larger group of transplanters so that we can bring in some some collaborative um, multi center work. But we're also a site for um, the CRISPR therapeutics trial and we've, we're treating, in the middle of treating two patients. Like this week, we just infused one of the patients with the modified cell product. We are beginning to enroll patients for the Vertex, for the Vertex Genome Editing Trial as well. And we have worked with John Tisdell at the NIH on a clinical trial for plerixafor mobilization of hematopoietic stem cells because you have to do that in order to do gene therapy. And I should say that, that again, uh, Jane has been instrumental in helping to recruit those patients. And, 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 and both, both Jane and Jeremy have played a role in overseeing those protocols from the hematology end uh, as, as part of the collaboration. On the research end, when I came here, I, I changed my research somewhat so that about 50% of my laboratory is working on genome editing uh, and other genetic therapies for sickle cell disease. And I hired a, a, a new faculty member whose, whose expertise is in the biochemistry of genome editing and the detection of off-target effects. And we have a GMP facility at St. Jude that is interested in helping to develop these therapies. So right now we're work. We, we have um, begun allogeneic transplantation and haploidentical transplantation, allogeneic matched SIB and haploidentical. We're enrolled in two industry genome editing protocols, and we're working together as a large group to to develop our own genome editing protocols. This is a group of clinical people and research people and GMP, and we have received funding to do that from the Doris Duke Foundation and also from the NIH, and um, we have institutional support as well. So we're we're hoping to have a, a long-term integrated multi-component program in curative therapies to to complement the work that Jane is doing in 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 healthcare delivery and transition, and also the work that Jeremy is doing in 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 new drug development. Most recently, Jeremy has taken on a role in, in the global program at St. Jude, and so we hope that down the road, and I hope I'm still around when this happens, that's, that that. Some of these therapies that we're we're developing can be translated to, to treating patients in lower middle income countries.
1: That's amazing. I mean, you touched on a lot of things in there, but I don't think there's any place in the world like St. Jude's where you have, you know, literally Nobel Prize winning labs right next to clinicians taking care of huge numbers of patients with a, a large clinical trials apparatus, huge um, patient programs and, and really access for the patients like like nowhere else, international programs, translational research, genomics, and a GMP facility that you can actually produce these things for a commercial grade study. I mean, you have a a, a long history of, of gene therapy research there and cancers and hemophilias and now um, moving that into sickle cell. I I don't think there's anywhere else in the world that can do these kinds of things. So,
6: Hey, listen, you guys are both welcome. Welcome to come work here.
1: (laughs) You know what would be better? How about we move the whole thing to Detroit?
6: (laughs) That you'll have to talk to the bosses.
2: (laughs) So I, I have a question for Wen, if I may. So Wen, when you came to St. Jude 40 plus years ago, did you ever envision the program that has developed and kind of the changes that have taken place (laughs) in the care of sickle cell patients and the promise of all these curative intent therapies that that are on the horizon?
5: Um, Not at all. And I think, uh, at least from my perspective, there's been a gradual evolution over the last 40 years in the direction of the things that you just mentioned. From my point of view, the most striking thing has been the change from having no treatment other than supportive care, really, for sickle cell patients, and uh, in particular for acute facial occlusive events, to then having hydroxyurea, which greatly improved the overall care and survival and survival of sickle cell patients and to now having uh, lots of different drugs, um, several of which you're working on, as, as potential options for, for the care of sickle cell patients. Uh, this sort of parallel developments of chronic transfusion um, and then bone marrow transplant and, then, and now uh, gene therapy have been equally as impressive. And, and none of those would I have envisioned uh, when I first came 40 years ago.
1: You know, some of that work with hydroxyurea um, and now, you know, Jeremy, with the newer drugs that you guys have been working on, have made big impact and the kids are doing quite well. There's still more work to do. But I think the big problem nationwide has been that transition to adulthood and adult care. And I know, Jane, you've been working on this and set up sort of a model program in Memphis. How did you do that?
4: I did uh, with a, a very large group of invested and passionate people. This is the kind of work that we never do alone. Uh, Yvonne was uh, so um, supportive and instrumental, and it is, and she is to this day, uh, the person I come to for questions and uh, in how do we begin addressing um, our community if we want to set up a program that goes across institutions. But uh, it was really an observation that um, uh, if we one day wanted to be a cutting edge institution that we delivered the best treatments and uh, we wanted our patients to participate in the opportunities for research we had to provide good care and that was true for children but also needed to be true for the adults and then uh, with a the large sickle cell population uh, in Memphis of um, with a lot of kids and all of the kids now surviving into adulthood we needed to have a structure that, we could continue treating the kids uh, during uh, adulthood, and uh, when I started looking at that problem uh, over a decade ago, we didn't have many places. We had a Dr. Dix Kraut's program that was founded by Dr. Lemuel Diggs, Dr. Uh, Wong mentioned, and that program wasn't enough to care for all the adults in Memphis. We had like two times, three times more adults that the program could absorb. So, uh, the other thing that I realized was that our kids did not want to go. and so I had to understand why they didn't want to leave. Well, the care was great, but also they were afraid, they were scared. So it was a lot of groundwork that needed to happen. We couldn't really continue giving great research without good care. I mean how how do we how do we investigate new drugs, gene therapy, even if we don't care for the patients? So, said, so I had to develop partnerships in the, in the community. Yvonne and I would um, developed partnership with the Methodist Program, with the Lemuel Dix Program, which is what we have today, a network of places that work together in partnership. And then over the years, this evolved into what we have today, which is a program, that, a pediatric program that is linked to Uh, two adult programs now that we patients have options. And we uh, have this uh, thing that we call the co-located model of care that pediatric and adult providers work together. And that has been, I would say, the thing that has been most successful uh, to allow our patients to remain in care because they keep seeing the same providers even after they leave St. Jude pediatric care. I still see my patients uh, as young adults and now we have adult doctors, adult hematologists coming to St. Jude and meeting them before they leave. So we have uh, this, this co-location going both ways. And uh, and that has been very successful to allow the patients to remain engaged in adult care, which was a big problem when we started. Care abandonment was huge. And it is, you know, not, you know, not at all like it used to be. And then patient satisfaction and, and the, the trust that we developed with them and Uh, it was really hard to let them go knowing that I was delivering them to a place that wasn't sure that they could continue that trust relationship but now it's different and then because of that I can you know when I see them uh, on the adult side I can say look there's an opportunity for a new treatment a gene therapy and and they trust and they said oh yeah I want to be the first one to try and so we have patients right now. One that Mitch mentioned uh, is undergoing the gene therapy treatment right now and we have four more waiting in line and uh, that's all trust that we developed good treatment and they're willing to try different things. Same with the new drugs.
2: That highlights what Wen and, and Jane just said a couple of things that you know the this institution has had a hand in many of the transformative studies and Trials over the years in sickle cell disease because there's been, you know, dozens of physicians that have worked here that are passionate about the pop the sickle cell population. But we wouldn't be able to do the things that we have described if we didn't have significant support from our administrative leadership at the hospital. This hospital's leaders over the, the decades that St. Jude has existed have always prioritized sickle cell disease. And we just have monumental levels of support compared to other sickle cell groups. And I just thought that we should at least give them some props because we would not be able to do the things that we have done. And hopefully we'll do in the future without that type of prioritization.
4: Jeremy's right. The work we do with the adult hospitals, uh, it wouldn't happen without the support of the, the literature at St. Jude. And I remember when I was a, uh, fellow working with WAN, that was, I, won't, I won't say how many years ago, uh, but I, uh, I remember when things were gaining traction and when it was getting NIH grants and hydroxy was being tested that we realized the care was fragmented because we had some kids in the general hosp- going to the general hospital, some kids coming to St. Jude. The institution said, no, we'll bring it all together. We'll consolidate the, the program at St. Jude. And that's when really things took off.
1: Another thing I was really impressed with, and I think this is probably related to that, when you have these strong relationships with your patients and it's all in one system, you're able to capture a lot of clinical data and, and really study sickle cell disease over a lifespan and look at different conditions that happen um, in in sickle cell uh, in a, a really clear way using a lot of clinical data And then marry that with this basic science research that's going on in genomics. And you have really powerful tools to find new targets for drugs, to find answers to questions about, you know, why are some patients doing better than others? So what what are the, I've seen that you guys have some huge resources there. In fact, I'm afraid to even talk about ideas because I know you'll get them done before I can even... Uh, write the grant here. But uh, I I know you have this St. Jude cloud now in the Scripps database. Um, Tell us a little bit about those.
4: Yeah, so we we do have a longitudinal that follows patients throughout their lifespan. And uh, we are able to do that because we have the transition to adult care program that we keep following them into adult care. But I think it's so critical that we do that because we treat the kid, we, we treat a child today. And the question that a Parent will always ask me uh, to, uh, you know, a six year old, a, a seven year old, I say, you know, I think this child need to be on this treatment. And the parent will immediately ask me uh, for how long and what will happen if I keep my child on this medicine 10, 20, 50, 20 years later. So, having the ability to follow the patients and capture outcomes throughout their lifetime, we're able to answer those questions. We're able to say, you know, it's uh, an, like an investment to you put your child on the treatment when he's two. And it's like a college savings and, and this is what's gonna happen. His organs are gonna be better and you know we will be able to succeed socially. So and you can do that without a large registry, without surveillance.
2: Jane uh, is the one who came up with that protocol and, and designed it. I'm to give her, her her shout out. It's called the Sickle Cell Clinical Research and Intervention Program, or SCRIP. You had mentioned the St. Jude Cloud. So a, as a part of SCRIP, there was an effort a few years ago to do kind of scientific investigation in the genetics of sickle cell disease and whether or not people could have genes in addition to sickle cell disease that would put them at risk for certain complications like kidney disease or early onset heart trouble or neurocognitive decline, those kinds of things that we see in some patients with sickle cell disease. Um, We've done um, a couple of projects now looking specifically for those markers and the one of the resources at St. Jude is called the St. Jude Cloud, which is a, a public facing portal that's designed really for the academic community. So you two gentlemen, Dr. Z and Dr. C, if you want to have access to the genomic data that was generated on the patients here, then it can be provided free of charge because the, the whole point of this um, is to, to fast track scientific findings so that we can then translate them into improved care, and we all know that although we're all great, we're we're working as hard as we can. Um, we can do things much faster um, and better when we collaborate and let everybody have access to to data and information.
0: That's such a huge undertaking. I was talking to my uh, our our new junior faculty about that yesterday, and. How um, we could potentially do some collaboration in uh, the realm of pain with you guys using the St. Jude Cloud. So hats off to you guys for being so collaborative, having such a collaborative spirit in the in the name of science. It's uh, very much appreciated, Jeremy. While I have your attention, because of your new role with Global, I want to hear a little bit about the St. Jude footprint outside of Memphis. Tell us a little bit about what St. Jude is doing for sickle cell disease outside of the confines of Tennessee.
2: I uh, I became involved in international medicines basically because I was I gained a lot of experience in doing clinical trial work and there were a couple of clinical trials that were ongoing in sub-Saharan Africa that I helped a friend, colleague, and mentor, Michael Debon, on a couple aspects and. While I was collaborating with him, I developed a relationship with the local hematologist there and it became pretty clear that there were some things that we as an institution and myself uh, as an investigator we had things that we could offer them to be able to improve the, the care that was delivered in Nigeria and specifically in Kano, Nigeria. So over the past couple of years, we've been working with a, a university hospital in Kano to establish newborn screening programs. And what people may not realize is that the even in the United States, Prior to the onset of newborn screening, there was a fairly substantial amount of infant mortality that was directly related to sickle cell disease. And by implementing newborn screening and universal penicillin prophylaxis and pneumococcal vaccinations, comprehensive education of parents, you can make very dramatic reductions in um, mortality rates for children under five. We have been establishing those programs in Kano, um, and actually, after a couple of years of effort, we have now started seeing patients in a comprehensive sickle cell clinic in Kano, Nigeria. And when I say comprehensive sickle cell clinic, I actually mean comprehensive based off of the standard of care that I use in my clinic here at St. Jude. Wow. Um, so, it's penicillin prophylaxis, it's TCD screening, it's education, parental educations, and the even hydroxyurea for children that are at risk of uh, having a primary stroke. So we're, we're quite excited. We've seen about 150 or so patients in that clinic now, um, and, it, and it's growing very quickly. We've taken that experience, and we have now... Through the global program we've supported four hospitals in tanzania to put together a grant application that would standardize education and standardize their sickle cell care comprehensive care for that region through a nih mechanism called sparco which is a an africa-wide consortium that the nih funds and it's you know, it's just growing every day. The more that we do, the more that we collaborate over there, the more opportunities there are. And the, the knowledge that we have generated here in the U.S. can frequently be directly applied to populations there that can have very dramatic improvements in uh, overall morbidity and mortality rates.
1: That's amazing.
6: I wanna go back to the point um, that you made about the generosity of St. Jude. I'll mitigate that a little bit. First, I'll support it, and then I'll say something that I'll qualify it. Um, The way the genomic effort started is Jim Downing, the CEO, called me and said, I have a million dollars extra for DNA sequencing. Would you like to use it for sickle cell disease? And because Scrip was set up, it, it, it was rel- it, relatively easy to, to take samples and do whole genome sequencing. And Jane helped out with that by doing the human subjects. But on the other hand, I want you guys to know that they don't throw money at us. At least they don't anymore. We have to write grants. And we, we are pretty well supported with, with federal funding. And I will not ask the institution for money now unless we, we have made substantial scientific progress, and already have a grant. And so what's, re- what's been really good for, for us is that you guys know that when you get an NIH grant, it doesn't give you enough to do the work. But I have a problem going to my bosses and asking them for money out of the blue. But if, if we have NIH grants or other grants, and we don't have quite enough to get the work done, then the institution has been, been pretty supportive about supplementing that work but there's a pretty heavy layer of academic rigor now. And having a grant will go a long way in convincing them that what we're doing is peer, peer supported.
2: That very much is true, but the, what I was referring to earlier was the, the level of support that we have for um, the number of faculty that we have for sickle cell disease and the, the level of support that they give us for direct patient care.
6: Absolutely. I mean, I know, the first thing I noticed when I came to St. Jude is that our inpatient census was about one third what it was at, at CHOP or Boston Children's where I had been. And I think part of that is that we have enough nurse practitioners and nurse case managers to keep keep those patients to, to manage the pain crises at home and to make sure that the patients are on hydroxyurea. I also noticed, you know, one of the first things I said, I remember saying this to Jeremy the patient's hemoglobin is 10, they must have SC disease because you couldn't not have a patient with a hemoglobin of 10 who has SS. And Jeremy was like, well, a lot of our SS patients are like that, you know, they're, they're tuned up on their hydroxyurea. We probably have two or three times more staff than most other hospitals to manage the patients. And this goes back to the very beginning of, you know, what 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 um, Yvonne said that, you know, we're really proud to be able to treat our patients under those conditions.
3: I'll just say it's a level of trust with the doctors. Uh, the patients can tell that the doctors care about them and the uh, advanced uh, providers uh, and nurse case managers that they care. We have an extremely high rate. We are a research hospital. That's what St. Jude was was founded to do, be a research hospital. But as a good neighbor policy, they provide care to anybody in the catchment area that has any of the diseases that we treat, which means with the Memphis population, over 900 children with sickle cell disease. And that's a huge number for a hospital to take in when you're providing complete care for everything. But the doctors, I think, are a big part, the reason that we have such a high rate of participation in our clinical trials. And uh, I think when you compare it to around the, the country and around the globe, I think we have one of the highest rates of patient participation for our research projects.
2: Yeah, actually, if you if you look at the participation rates for the SCRIPT protocol, the lifespan cohort, um, over 95% of the people that we approach consent. And of the ones that consent, there are various kind of levels of participation Almost all of them participate in every level. It's, uh, it's really f- phenomenal. I, you know,
0: I've got to ask, Yvonne, for you this, this question, and, and maybe maybe also for you, when You know, here in Detroit, uh, the culture of trust has um, been helped by the presence of a really strong community-based organization that was led initially by Charles Witten and now by his daughter, Wanda Witten-Sherney. I wonder what type of community partners you guys have there in Memphis that that help you Um, create that sense of community. Um, Are there any CBOs that you guys interface with regularly?
3: So we work really hard. And again, uh, the level of support with working with the community organization, the Sickle Cell Foundation of Tennessee covers the entire state of Tennessee. And uh, we work with them on uh, numerous projects at at every level, uh, podcasts, webinars, help them with with walks, help them with uh, community-based grants that they're putting in. We've partnered with them for over 15 years. Even before they became, we encouraged them to become separate foundation. And so it's been an extremely, extremely good level of participation. And it's it's comforting, Dr. I know Wanda well, and she's great. But the founder, Trevor Thompson died. And so that really set the organization back for a while, but now it's thriving again. And uh, all of the, the physicians and uh, providers work very well with the foundation and help in any way when asked.
5: I'll just mention that I have run in their 5K uh, fundraising event for every year, I think, for the last 15 years or so.
2: And he always wins his age bracket, right?
5: Uh, I'm always the only person in my age group.
6: I yeah. um, want to mention your website, the the web development that you're doing.
3: Yes, so we're we're creating a patient. We have many educational, a lot of educational material for people with sickle cell disease. Uh, but one of the things that we're developing now is a patient app for general hematology, but we'll have specific information for sickle cell disease, and we're basing it on what the patient wants. We're having focus groups, of course, and surveys to find out exactly how they want that uh, information provided. And a lot of this was based on the the work that Jane has done with patient app and patient education and development and her in charge app that she developed, which is phenomenal. Uh, Jane, you want to talk a little bit about that? Um,
4: hydroxyurea. Yeah, absolutely. So that was, uh, that's an NIH funded study that we have that we developed an app to help uh, patients take hydroxyurea. And uh, that was developed with the patients, including the name In Charge Health. So, and, and and that's really, um, I think, where a lot of the things are going, a, a lot of the, the field is going. So it's how you package the information, how you help the patients engage in treatment, which is you know, it's, uh, so it's almost like you know Jeremy when uh, Jeremy when and and Mitch developed the treatments and they handed it to me and Yvonne. Now we're gonna take it to the real world and how do we teach the patients how to use it and and keep them um, informed and you know interested in continuing treatment.
2: It's a symbiotic relationship.
4: Yes, yeah.
5: I wanted to just mention that uh, in addition to the support from the institution for personnel to, to support our. Uh, sickle cell efforts. We're, we're fortunate uh, to have a group of uh, nurse case managers, of teachers. We have actually three teachers for the sickle cell program who interact with uh, our patients, families, and the schools that uh, they go to, and and social workers. So actually we also have a, two uh, TCD examiners. We're really well supported in Pretty much all aspects of clinical care for sickle cell sick patients.
1: We talked about international outreach, amazing patient care, you know, innovative research, and I see lots of Nature and Blood papers. And one thing we haven't talked about, and I I think this is another huge output of St. Jude's, is the doctors. You trained doctors and really leaders in hematology who go off to other places and provide care all over the country and even the world. So uh, tell me a little bit about the mentorship programs at St. Jude. And the, I, I'm always impressed that in this cancer center, you're churning out sickle cell doctors.
5: Well, we've we've had a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, I think we're fortunate that um, a significant proportion of the fellows decide to go into non-malignant hematology. Many of them uh, work in, a, in one of the labs, such as Mitch's lab or labs associated with other aspects of of hematology. And uh, some of them, including both Jane and Jeremy, were fellows that uh, went through the uh, St. Jude Fellowship and decided to uh, spend time in sickle cell care and uh, spend their careers taking care of sickle cell patients.
2: I think one of the reasons that that happened for me, and I, you know, it was... Going through that clinic and seeing the level of care that was provided and the fact that in providing that level of care through that clinic, you could make a substantial difference in individuals with sickle disease lives. And I'm not sure that every trainee at other institutions gets to see that level of impact uh, with sickle cell patients, but that's what made it interesting for me. And I, I think that as fellows have come through, that's one of the things that have kind of gravitated them towards our program.
4: For me, uh, Wayne was my mentor uh, when I was a fellow, and to me it was watching him discuss treatment and uh, sickle cell disease and what happens to the body with the families, but it was completely formed by science, by his research, so, I, I I distinctly remember the rigor in his presentations and discussions with patients that it was never, I think this may happen, it was all based on data and results and he could all, always quote uh, the research, you know, a colleague or he, so that really um, really grabbed my, my interest because I, I said I want to be a person who is able to d- deliver hard information to our patients that is informed by hard data. Uh,
0: you know, we could sit here and talk about you guys for the next two weeks, probably, um, and still not cover everything. You know, once again, thank yeah. you so much for for your time. Thank you so much for everything you do, for fighting the good fight and making things better for patients with sickle cell disease. And, and I hope that we can do this at some point in the near future again
1: and, and, and stay connected. And like live in yeah. person over a beer somewhere. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, guys.
3: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Hats off. So lucky to be surrounded by some like minded folks that happen to be thousand miles away, but really feels like we've known them longer. For sure. Um we hope that you guys found this episode enlightening, inspirational. We hope that you share this episode with someone who you think could learn a little bit about sickle cell disease, somebody who you think could get a better handle on how research works in sickle cell disease. And of course,
1: you yourself, subscribe, share, review. Tell us what you like to hear. I like these legacy podcasts where we're focusing in on the history of a place. And I like the ones where we go over a disease state or have an expert on about one of those things. But tell us what you guys want to hear.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're always happy to hear from you guys.
1: That was a great episode, Dr. Z.
0: All right, guys, we'll see you around. Peace.